Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy and this is the Poor Poles Almanac. Today we're joined by Mick from Boomtree Bees in Ireland. The mission of Boomtree Bees is to help with conservation and rewilding of the native but not very well-known honeybee through habitat creation and development. What's particularly interesting is their use of log hives with the goals that it mimics the natural habitat for honeybees in the Irish countryside. Mick's incredible knowledge on the subject of honeybees, and specifically the native honeybee to Ireland, is inspiring as a fellow beekeeper, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing his thoughts on the role of beekeeping and honeybees in 2022. While most of our audience is in the United States, I think it's really important to understand the context of the honeybee and maybe start thinking about the place of the honeybee within our ecosystem. It's not an easy answer, and I'm not sure if we have one here, but I do think this is where we begin those conversations. So take a listen. Let us know what you think. Mick, thanks so much for joining us. So tell me a little bit about this organization, Boom Tree Bees, where it came from, kind of what was the inspiration for it? Right, so I'll have to start off kind of with my background. So I grew up like in Holland, where I kind of lived up in the, lived in the countryside. And because of the involvement and, and me being out there all the time, like I got real interest in trees and conservation work. So I kind of followed that up. Which studied then, so I did an international, um, went to an international college in Velp, you call it, so that's in Holland, where I studied um, forestry and landscape management. And I did then finishing off like uh, with a kind of more individual subject in conservation work. So looking after national parks um, and trying to increase the kind of remnants of forest that we've left and obviously improved them for um, long-term um, kind of like outlook like for the, for the public. So with that, um, I came then over here in Ireland in 99, did like a small project uh, with a couple of national parks. While I was over here, I noticed that the, um, the kind of setup over here, like in the forestry and the landscape management was quite poor. It was very focused on big scale production, just timber production and nothing else. There was no real scope at all, like for uh, kind of more uh, natural regeneration. Um, I suppose like nowadays you call that rewilding and everything. But yeah, so that's my 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 whole kind of like uh, studies kind of tied in with that. So the company I worked for at the time, like the Civic, are really keen to have you over and do some work for us. So I actually then came back uh, after finishing my studies and uh, I started up then my own contracting company. Like, so I looked after uh, quite a bit of the national parks uh, from there. And obviously I saw more and more as the years went on, um, I saw more and more problems. And obviously I wanted to kind of do something about it, leave like a, a tiny little footprint behind like if possible. Um, so I actually stepped away then from the forestry. I went into organic farming. Uh, so I worked for a 30-acre organic vegetable farm. And that's where it became really apparent in that there was like a big problem like with pollination here in Ireland. So I started to kind of look into how can I improve it. So I started to improve just, a, just around the farm. Like I started to improve 
the kind of foraging areas like for the bees, obviously to attract the bees, like to pollinate the crops. Um, so that's where my kind of interest in started in bees then as well. Um, but during that period then, um, pure by chance then, my, my friend like who was a beekeeper, he suddenly passed away and um, I was then um, faced with the situation where I inherited um, a couple of colonies of bees. <laughs> nice. And obviously not knowing like what I was doing, um, because obviously I've been reading about it, but obviously I had no hands-on experience. So I took on like, like, just like a, a conventional uh, beekeeping course, um, trying to learn. And obviously with my background, like I kept asking questions and questions kind of more to the natural aspect like of the life of the bee. Like, and the more I kept asking, the less answers I was getting. So I started doing more research then afterwards and um, uh, found a bit more wholesome approaches like that was kind of practiced like in Europe um, way, way back. We we're talking like about five, six hundred years uh, where they still use like old tree trunks um, to, to manage uh, bee colonies. And from there then um, I kind of drifted away like from the organic farming and I got more and more interest in the bees. So I started up in my company, like uh, Boom Tree Bees. So it actually, it's actually kind of like a deviation. And so you have the, the first section, like Boom, it's actually the Dutch word for tree. But it sounds really good. <laughs> tree Tree Bees. Yeah, yeah. Tree Tree Bees. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about that. I was like, what? what is a Boom Tree? I've never heard that term. I couldn't find anything on it. No. But now, now I know. Yes. It's just Tree Trees. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. It's funny. I think a lot of people go into beekeeping and your natural inclination is to say, I'm going to go take a class. They're cheap. And these people have been doing it for a number of years, often decades. And especially if you come at it from an ecological bent, you end up getting really confused because it doesn't make any sense. And then and then you, you start to think about it. More. I mean, I remember I'm just like, Jesus, I... I feel like I'm a chemist and I'm totally out of my element. And this should be really, I don't want to say it should be easy, but it shouldn't be this hard. And then it kind of dawned on me that maybe maybe it's time to step back and reassess all of what we're doing here. So that that's really cool to hear that. It sounds like a, a kind of similar story to you. What's interesting about what you're doing is you're also, uh, you've brought up this idea of like utilizing honeybees as pollinators. Now that is, here in the United States, that's kind of a, I don't want to say triggering type concept, but a lot of people get really concerned when you talk about save, or they, they use the phrase save the bees, meaning save the pollinators. And then people start talking about honeybees and it's like, no, the honeybees don't necessarily need to be saved here because they're non-native. Now, what's what's the case in Ireland? I know that like England had a native, has still continuously a native bee. And I know there's been some really interesting research about the genetics surviving despite the overwhelming amount of uh, non-native bees moving into the area. Uh, tell us a little bit about Ireland. So, so the situation in Ireland is until say a good five, five to ten years ago, there was the understanding there was no wild bees whatsoever, no, no Apis mellifera mellifera. But then in 2017, there was a study done on 200. I think it was 200 hives, and from the 200 hives that they took samples, um, they took like, genetic samples from them and they compared them to old 
samples that they had in one of the European uh, museums. They dated back like from the early 1800s, I think it was. And uh, they compared the genetic data from the 200 samples here with those ones, and they found out that um, a good majority of the hives, the samples that were taken from the hives, had still that genetic code, but it actually had slightly adjusted. So they found out that it's very unique. Um, so we're actually one of the, the classes now as like one of the strongholds of Apis mellifera mellifera in Europe. So we have like completely separate genetic code to the Apis mellifera in other countries. Awesome. Yeah, so it's, which is very good. Like, uh, yeah, so from there, from there then, sort of obviously trying now to protect it. So they actually, from that research, they have drafted a bill that went into the government two years ago. They are now trying to protect that uh, genetic code that is found here in Ireland. And it's it's been, it's going through the motions at the moment. I think it's at level two at the moment. So once it gets to level three, then it definitely gets uh, a protection status, the honeybee. That raises a really, I think, important question around how do we na- how do we define when things are naturalized? You know, is it when the genetic code has become so much different from what it was? And how does that impact like the relationships that it has within the ecosystem? Because again, here in the United States, there's a lot of concern that honeybee, uh, Apis mellifera mellifera, or the Italian or whichever, they're outcompeting native pollinators. And to an extent that is slightly true, but it's a much more complicated conversation. Yes. And I'm sure you're you're seeing that debate happen oh, in real time. I, I still get the same thing as well, like because when people come to me, they ask me like, it's like oh well, so how how do you work with your bees?" Like, um, and when I tell them, then right, I have over two hundred and fifty colonies myself. Uh, they go like, "Oh, that's going to have a huge impact on uh, the local environment, this, that, and the other." Um, but when I explain to them, then is how my hives are spread out. So I would be working on, say, uh, a grid uh, pattern like on the on the local map, and I have like gridded out in one square kilometers, and I have a hive in each square kilometer. So I have it spread out all over the area, um, and obviously I'm trying to figure out where there is the kind of that uh, natural level of that is not going to be competing with anything else. Um, so you'll see. Some years like you might get a slight increase, you might have a few more colonies, and some years it might be dropping down, but it's always around that 250 now at the moment. So I see that for myself like as a good level, and with it as well, like and obviously with all the research that's been done, when you have them that spread out, uh, there is absolutely no problem of um, competition in between the wild pollinators and honeybees. So what are you, what are you using to kind of define um, whether or not you're seeing any negative impacts? Like, what is it that you identify as the the key indicators? So, if somebody is thinking about you know getting multiple beehives, how to tell when it's maybe too many? Well, well, you, you know yourself, like um, a range like of a honeybee can go up to five five kilometers thereabouts, three four mile. So, if you were to put 10 beehives in one location, you have a possibility there are 600,000 bees at one given time. Like they could be out foraging in one little small area. And obviously at that stage, then obviously you're going to definitely have, going to have an impact. 
um, because those honeybees, they definitely will be foraging away. And obviously, they, they're very dependent on the variety as well. Like as you're talking about your um, slightly different subspecies, like in the honeybees, some are a bit more competitive than others. See, our apiary mellifera is um, a bit more frugal, so it doesn't need large stores at all. But say, like of Italian bees or something like they just they get into real big colonies. I've seen colonies um, around here, like where you get the numbers up to 100, 120,000 bees in one hive. Oh wow! Yeah, that's 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 pretty big. And and so so with that, obviously, you're going to have definitely a certain impact. And they've been studies done on it where they had in certain locations, say 15, 20 hives, where they started to look at say just for example the bumblebees and what they're noticing that actually the size of the bumblebees started to change after a couple of years so they actually went smaller and that's an indication that obviously they don't get proper feeding anymore so then obviously there's a lack of um, food for those and obviously then the those uh, honeybees and obviously having an impact on the forage for the native pollinators as well so do you think you've kind of figured out, and obviously there's a, a number of things that can play into what kind of food availability there is for pollinators, but have you found kind of in your ecosystem that around one hive per kilometer seems to be a, a pretty stable and healthy place? Yeah, I, I tried at first where, where I had like higher numbers, and I just found that uh, some of the hives today started to slow down. They didn't do as good as other ones in the same in the same area. Um, so I just start thinning that out and thinning that out, and that's what I'm down to now. So yeah, I don't. With most of the colonies now, like I have no issues whatsoever. I have colonies on the go now; they're eight, nine years old, and they're thriving every year. That's awesome. And I'm assuming you're not treating them or anything. No, no treatment whatsoever. No. Awesome. That's a great transition point. I want to talk about how you're actually housing these bees. The log hives themselves are a really cool concept. Could you speak a little bit about what these might look like to someone who's never seen one and then kind of how that works as a, a beekeeper? Yeah, okay. Um, so um, kind of the natural habitat like for your honeybee is all tree cavities. And obviously, depending on the type of a tree, you're going to get certain shapes and sizes. Like, But what we find around here, that um, natural cavities, like they, they're roughly in around eight to eight and a half inches in diameter. Uh, and obviously they're not perfectly straight. It could be kind of more twisted and up and down, whatever. But that's what we're kind of being seen because here in Ireland, I don't know if you know, like since the last century, like most of our forest cover is gone. We're down to about 1% of native woodland left and the rest has been all cut away. So the only thing we have left now is young trees up to the age, if we're lucky, like up to the age like of maybe... 80, 90 years because they only started really planting again in about the 20s. So obviously you're going to be working with thinner trees and obviously with that uh, you'll get cavities in the air that are not going to be as big as when you have real old mature trees that are four or 500 years old. Obviously your cavities could be slightly larger in size. Uh, but yeah, so the natural cavity about eight, eight and a half inches. So we're trying to um, to mimic those cavities like in the trees. Um, so what we're doing is we're using trees that uh, have died of natural causes, either by storm damage or they have fallen over um, or they died of natural causes and 
they're causing a um, health and safety risk, so they have to be taken down. We repurposed those tree trunks and we turned them into um, those kind of cavities, like so man-made cavities, but that looked like the natural kind of um, format. So on average, uh, the logs, they're in around three foot long. Um, is it is it feet or is it metric you use up there? We use feet. Feet, right, okay. So about three foot long. On average, the diameter of the full log, we're talking about 20, 22 inches. Can be more, but that's kind of the minimum. Um, so that's allowing a good thick cavity or a good thick cavity wall of minimum four, four and a half inches at least. Oh yeah, that's real good. So the more more protection they get from the extremities, uh, from the Irish weather, and the better it is because it's much easier for them to uh, sustain that, that stable temperature inside of 33, 35 degrees. Um, so yeah, once we have them uh, hollowed out to that kind of uh, eight and a half inch diameter, uh, we then put a, a ceiling because we come in lengthwise like through the log, like so with the grain, we go straight through. So we just bore the whole log out and then obviously put it like a ceiling and a floor in it. So the floor um, is about three inches thick, but it's it's removable. So we can in, still inspect the height like from underneath and then we can go in there with um, with cameras, uh, little borehole cameras. So we can uh, position them in between the cone uh, to still able to check like how the cone is progressing. And then the ceiling is kind of the same, it's slightly thicker because obviously we're trying to retain all that heat. So it's a three inch piece of timber and then there's insulation above it, uh, it's either sheep's wool or sawdust. Uh, and then over that, you'll have a proper roof then. And depending on the situation, it can be either an ordinary flat roof or we can go a bit more aesthetic ones. Like, so I make thatched roofs as well that go over, but that's just more for, for look than anything else. Awesome. So they, those logs in, um, where possible, I position them in tree, into trees from lots of research that's been done out there, um, especially by some of your fellow countrymen, uh, Thomas Seeley as well. Um, he did a lot of research on that. There's been quite a bit of research done now in here in Europe as well, like all of the wild colonies, and we all find in around four um, to eight meters high that those bees prefer to live. So that's where I position them hives in, into the trees, and then they can take an uplick then with, um, with swarms and move in. And obviously then from there on, then they build their own, uh, their own comb uh, all the way down. On average, like we're working on about six, seven sheets of comb they build in that cavity. And the nice thing about it as well is like what we see um, bees say in a conventional situation when bees come out of the winter, uh, a good strong colony comes out the winter. You know, it's kind of like a rugby ball shape to have in the hive. Yep. And they normally cover six to seven combs. Oh yeah, it's perfect when you think about it. So it's an ideal, an ideal size that, because what you get uh, throughout that whole winter period, that they literally sitting from wall to wall. There's no, there's no cold spots at all in that uh, hive. Um, so yeah, that's that's why we're kind of working with that kind of a format now at the moment, and we're kind of toying out a bit like just trial and error, um, changing the the volume size like. Initially, I started off with maybe 43 meters, and I've gone down to now about 34. 
34 liters in volume for the hive. I feel like the last, or at least maybe I'm just becoming more aware of it, but the last few years there seems to be a lot more interest in the idea of insulating the hives better because trees were thicker and they provided that natural insulation. And even if you look at like the old Langstroth hives, they were originally designed to be much thicker than the Langstroth hives we use today. And uh, I think commercialization has pushed for these, you know, half inch walled Everything has to be lightweight because yeah, exactly. the, the, idea, the idea of those uh, framed hives is not to suit the bees, it's to suit the beekeeper. Exactly. They're lighter to pick up yeah. and uh, they just, they struggle. You know, I, it's, it's so funny. I see a lot of research here locally, like people applying for grants to trial different ways to insulate hot, uh, the Langstroth hives. And it's basically the government is now paying people to figure out how to do how we used to do 150 years ago. So it's like we're relearning ourselves, even though the information is already out there. Mm. We just have to go find it. Yeah. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that we have free native seeds going out from our website, poorproles.com. From there, you can check out our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for the stuff we talk about on the show. If you want to support the Native Seed Project, the podcast, or the supplemental reader, you can do that through either Patreon or Substack, which you can reach through the website poorproles.com. If you enjoy the show and are just looking for more audio content, Check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene. Further, we'll talk about what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Now, with these uh, log hives, we're talking about history way, way older, but there are people that have been doing it basically perpetually somewhere, mostly in Europe, Eastern Europe and Northern Europe. How accessible is this idea of using log hives for the average backyard beekeeper? Um, at, at the beginning, when I started off, I was very much frowned upon. I was getting the same kind of reaction as what G's are getting over there with um, saying, okay, it's good to protect honeybee. The whole idea of me just putting out hives not not checking them at all. Yeah, no one likes that here. Because <laughs> I only go in a twi- I, I go in twice a year, like for my inspection, once in spring and one in autumn time, just to see how the colony progressed and what they've done like throughout the season. So I was getting lots of frowning, and it, it took a couple of years for sure, where people obviously could see. Then obviously I was my numbers were only increasing. I wasn't losing any numbers, um, and it's got. I went, like, say, from, I started off with a couple, just like four or five, and then very rapidly, like, okay, went into 50, 100, and sort of now over 250. And they can see now that the bees that I I have myself, like, they're much calmer. They're not aggressive at all. There's no need, like, to, to go in there with guns blazing, with smoke and everything, because it's so calm. I can literally just lean up against the entrance hole with my eye, literally, and they just fly around <laughs> and nothing happens at all. Like, so now I have people coming to me looking for bees constantly. <laughs> they said, like, oh, is there any chance we could have some of your bees? Uh, because they notice them. They definitely are noticing that they're much calmer than their own bees. Uh, they're less less stressed and uh, less aggressive as well. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I, and that's how you get the genetics out there as long as they don't treat them, basically. Yeah. Well, so you see, the whole, the whole idea about um, the project that I started myself here with all these hives is to get like a sustainable population of good stock bees. So bees that are able to fend themselves like in the wild can do whatever they want. And um, every year they produce in a swarm of bees and those bees then I can then either pass on or if they're too far away from, from your own house, I could say to local beekeepers, if you're looking for bees, there these are the locations in your locality. If you want some swarms, you can go and put up some bait boxes and use those. So what you're doing is you're 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 getting rid of um, the need like for importation, important bees, because the demand here is phenomenal um, to buy um, save just bees like just in general. I think now we're we're ranging around the four hundred euros um, per like a little nook, like a six framed hive for for bees uh, that we're paying now, and it's only getting more and more because the demand goes up. So I, I see, I see there. There's, there's a great opportunity for, like, the whole country. Like, if we got it, like, on a nationwide level, uh, where you have all these spots dotted around, like, with native stock, um, sitting there, and all the beekeepers then can benefit from it. So you can completely then rule out uh, the need for importation. Are you seeing um, people becoming more open to the concept of natural beekeeping? Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. Um, and and with again, because people get so frustrated um, with treatments and chemicals that's been used, um, we over here, like our our most basic hive, like we call it a national hive. Um, the depth of the um, the brood frames, they're only nine inches. Oh wow, that's <laughs> they're really, really and and they're just not suitable. You just you can when you're looking at a colony when you inspect them, you can see it doesn't suit those bees at all because they'll just fill that whole frame uh, with brood yeah literally from from left to right and from, from bottom to top and there's nowhere where they have that classic band of pollen around it or honey stores so what you're doing straight away when you have a solid frame then somewhere else in the hive they have to store away the food and obviously when they're air and brood like obviously the closer by you can have it the better it is for the development of those, uh, of that new young brood. Um, so it's, it just doesn't suit at all. It doesn't suit at all, like, unfortunately. And then you just, that's why I see then lots of colonies getting stressed over time. They swarm more multiple times as well, like, and um, get more diseased and over the head of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this past year is my first year testing, doing uh, extra deep top bar hive as opposed to Langstroth. Mm-hmm. And um, giving them that extra space, I, it's the first year I, I didn't treat and the first year that I had a successful overwinter. And I'm sure those three things are not, you know, they're correlated. It's because they have access to the food that they need, the spacing that they need, the insulation that they need. And they've been successful. And that, I think, is given the fear that is around this concept of natural beekeeping here in the United States, in particular, people will try to get you in trouble with the government for not not treating your bees uh it's it's absolutely insane and frightening so uh it's cool to see it seems like it's starting to change a bit here but it, it's awesome to hear that it's also changing over there yeah oh no it's, it's definitely and, and it's just this is needed because 
the only thing you're doing, like you're you're um, you're stopping the bee from actually adapting naturally to the likes of varroa or other pests and um, viruses and whatever. Uh, by you treating constantly, like you're kind of subduing them constantly all the time, and you're just making them think worse. Because now we, I think it was only this week now we've got now a new chemical um, that's brought onto the market for the treatment of varroa. Um, because they said now some of the other treatments that they have, they don't work anymore. So what, what they're saying is, well, they're not saying it, but what's happening is the varroa is getting completely resistant to those treatments. And obviously you're just creating a more powerful um, pest like um, and obviously as it goes on and on and on like you'll get to the point where you can throw any chemical at it and nothing will happen anymore and then obviously the beekeeper is then completely defeated because he doesn't know what to do anymore yeah and it's like we're basically creating a super bug for our bees <laughs> yeah. and it's like we haven't learned anything about America or the way we, we take care of our bodies and the way we think about healthcare for people where we're dipping into this territory of there are things we cannot fix because they're resistant to everything we give them now and we're, we're just translating that to the way we we maintain one of the most important pollinators for our food crops mm. that is kind of like the main the, the, the tree so for for me like it's it's all about the forage and the landscape around them um, obviously proper housing heaven raised nice relaxed and can be like so they don't have to work three times as hard like to keep it warm they don't have to um, work hard like to to fend off like pests and, and diseases because they're sitting in such a humid climate uh, inside that nest. Because what I've monitored them now, like and I my average humidity like in the hive is about sixty three percent. But what I get is I don't get any condensation on the on say on the roof level of the hive. I don't get none of that at all. The only place where I get condensation is at the entrance. And obviously that is the cold spot in the hive. And what the bees actually do in there is actually reusing that water that condenses at the entrance and bringing it back into the hive again. So you, which, because with the conventional hive, like most of the time, like your, your, um, your crown board is, is where all the, all the uh, humidity condenses on. And especially in the winter months, like you get, um, downfall from that like and it actually drips then onto the comb where the comb gets wet like and obviously you can build up mildews funguses whatever it is like causing obviously the bad like health like for the bees uh, and obviously the bees come out of the winter more stressed and, and weaker and obviously the beekeeper has to stand and step in but yeah what, what I'm really keen out to find out myself as well is, is because that um, humid air because in the log house all my walls are completely coated solid with propolis um, as the bees move in like they just kind of naturally build like a complete cocoon all the way around them I've seen situations now where it's nearly like two, two, two and a half mil thick of propolis like on the walls coated so any any water vapor that is on there is in contact with that so I'm hoping now that um, someone is going to do some sampling for me where they can actually see that water that they ingest in again that condenses at the entrance, if it already has the natural properties like the propolis as well. Uh, because I've seen and I've read a lot of studies like on uh, the good benefits like of propolis 
for the bees and obviously for the whole superorganism. So I'm wondering if they're ingesting that water, that it will have then obviously a beneficial effect of the, the micro gut uh, of the, the bee itself and obviously if it improves it and obviously uh, makes some strong bees as well in the long run. Yeah, self-perpetuating basically. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. So have you, it sounds like you've been basically doing all vertical hives. Have you tried any like basically mimicking like the top bar style, but within the log? Yeah, I do them as well. Yeah. So I do them for um, observation purposes, especially for education, where I make a much shorter hive, but I use larger logs. So the logs are on average, probably about a good 28 inches in diameter. And I make them much shorter then. So they have wider comb. The cavities are probably about 12 inches wide. So they can, I can reduce then the length of the log. But what it does, like, is it, it lets them build them. So what I then have at the back, a um, observation window where, say, especially for schools, community groups, where they can actually take away the back lid and then uh, observe the bees um, from there without interfering and obviously breaking that seal completely. So they're completely still sealed in. So they don't lose that environment they build up inside like over time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do them, yeah. And, and they're very successful. Um, I do notice with that format, the slightly swarm a bit more than uh, the vertical format. The, the vertical formats, they literally only swarm once. I'd say with the um, observation one, the kind of horizontal format, um, I do get casts as well coming from them. Gotcha. Yeah. I know you said you've got hives that are significantly older than anything anyone would ever expect, at least here in the United States. What are like your general survival rates like overwintering? Okay, well, last year I lost two colonies. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I lost more hives than you last year. Yeah, two, two, I lost two colonies and one was a, uh, a swarm that I caught actually into a log uh, in the first week of September. So I kind of already knew they weren't going to make it. Uh, because our autumns here are very wet um, and obviously the bees just don't get the chance to build the comb and the other one I cleaned it out in when was that the first week in May because I didn't start to notice and there was wasps going into the hive and when I checked it um, it turned out that uh, the previous year like it swarmed swarmed out and uh, the new queen she wasn't getting mated or didn't get mated right because by the time I checked it, the only thing that was left in the brood area was um, old drone brood. So she obviously failed for whatever reason. Yeah. So maybe, maybe she didn't get mated right or, or she failed completely. So she got taken over by a, a lane worker. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the selection process. So Yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's very good. And I, I say that to everyone. And I, think I get loads of people come to me. And uh, they say, like, oh, I said, what happens like, if you see a colony failing on you? And I'm going, like, yeah, so be it. I said, I'm not going to do anything. I said, obviously, there's a reason why they're failing. And uh, I'm not going to step in at all. If they're dying out, they're dying out. Oh, but yeah, you have to protect the bees and this, that, and I said, no, no. I said, this is the way it works in a natural situation. If you look the research, on average, they say, like, oh, one in five should survive, like, I find that um, success rates are much higher here once they have the good housing. And see, you see it's all down to, um, because every time I put up a hive, I really study the landscape around it as well. So I kind of take in consideration if there is going to be enough food there available throughout the full season. 
I think it's prime. Like you do get people like, oh yeah, they buy some bees and plunk it into their backyard and, and think it's all going to be fine because they're within the first couple of hundred meters, they might have a few bushes that are flowering at certain times of the year, but other parts of the year they don't. And that's where you, know, you get your issues if you don't have that constant supply of food. Like, yeah. Especially, well, for here, like for us, here it's September time, it's a crucial time like for a good um, flower supply because obviously then you get your forming of winter bees and obviously those those are the ones, like if they don't get fed properly uh, with a good pollen mix, then obviously your bees are going to be coming very weak out of the winter or you're going to have to supplement them with something. Do you supplement at all or no? No. I'm assuming not? No. Yeah. No, there's no need, absolutely no need. Um, I literally have, I had colonists going into the winter and they literally would be the size of your, like two fists put together, tiny little balls of bees, like after they swarming out. Um, and next spring they come out perfectly fine and they're absolutely thriving. I'm watching one here now. I have cameras in some of my hive, like just observe. I actually thought at one stage there last month that one colony completely died out. But then all of a sudden they just start flying again, going back and forth. And when I inspect them, then like they're only sitting on maybe two or three frames at this time of the year. But guaranteed, like next year they'll they'll come flying out of the hive again, like in springtime. That's awesome. Yeah. For folks that that want to get their hands involved in something like this, is there a really good resource that you would recommend? Um, if you want to get a more um, approach on the natural life. Uh, of honeybees because I think I think it's crucial see especially with I, I don't know how it is with yourself like over in America like but over here it's very focused like on the beekeeper like very focused on the beekeeper the treatment schedule especially the way you go about like by, by teaching and everything like yeah. everything you learn into like a beginner's course it's kind of 50-50 I think it should be 90-10 90 all about the bee and 10 only about the beekeeper. Uh, but once you go into these courses, well, I find myself anyway, maybe it's different with yourselves. I find, I find I wish it was. <laughs> I, I think it's more, more focused like on how the beekeeper gets through the year and not the bees. So I think this should be a good focus like on the natural life first, get a real good understanding on how that works, how the whole process of a swarm moving into a hive or into a space, what to do, like, and obviously from there, then you make the decision what kind of hive is going to be most suitable for you with that in mind. Because if you can compare your your Langstroth or our national hive with that format, it's absolutely absurd if you think of it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, so yeah, then there should be a real focus. So for books, yes, obviously you you got uh, your own Thomas Seeley over there. He wrote some brilliant books, The Life of Bees, um, Honeybee to Democracy, and uh, others. There's a few more like that he wrote, but definitely those two would be would be brilliant to um, to start off with, just to get that understanding on what bees actually want and do in the wild in a wild situation where no one interferes with them. You understand that, and from there on, then you step into your uh, conventional beekeeping course. Because I'll guarantee every person that starts off with that first and uh, then goes into convention the beekeeper course, they'll have 10 times more questions for their tutors. And look a lot more confused during the class. 
No, no, they won't be confused because obviously they'll see then. I meant more about why, the, why they're teaching it. The treatment, yeah. Why they're teaching it because they'll see straight away the format of your square box hive with, what is it, 10 or 12 frames in it. That's not to suit the bees. It's to suit the beekeeper. Yeah. So he can go in there, he can pull out the frames left, right, and center and do the inspections. And then you'll see sometimes as well like where they literally go, oh, no, I don't want it here in this position. I'll put it over there. Well, that's that's an absolute no-no in my eyes. Like, But there's no no point like going into the whole practices of beekeeping and everything. Yeah. But yeah, no, definitely. Um, very good books on that. There's a couple of nice books like done by Celia Davis. What do you call it again? Be Around and About. Uh, and the Bee Inside Out, I think, as well. Like, very good, interesting books. Definitely get a couple of books like on a bit of the, um, the inside like workings of honeybees as well. Get a good basic understanding of all the glands and everything and how that works, how the bees communicate, because not many bee courses like that are being taught. They would actually speak about the proper way of communication. They'll do they'll, they'll do the basic and say you'll have your bee dances and the round dance and the waggle dance, but the main source of communication like, is all about pheromones, uh, and that's they they, they let off like by the, the glands. HB has multiple glands like on their feet, on the head, torso, uh, abdomen, like, and they clearly communicate like and with that, if you know that understanding of those glands. You can understand as well when you're looking at a frame is what is actually going on uh, with those bees. So those, yeah, definitely um, get a couple of books like that. Awesome. Just on on, on those uh, subjects and then get into your beginner's beekeeping course. <laughs> the, the pre-homework before you get into the class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you have to, like, because hey, you're, you're taking on a responsibility. If you're if you're committing yourself like to taking on bees, it is huge responsibility because over here they're still classed um, as well as livestock. I, I assume it's the same with yourself. Yep. You have an obligation to look after that livestock, and just by you going in and using chemicals left, right, and center, that's not the way how you treat um, animals. Like uh, you have to really, really know like how they operate and and how everything works inside inside a nest uh, for you then actually to make a good judgment of what you have to do like if there is a problem yeah because the way i always look is once i see a problem in a hive i always ask first why i don't go oh, how do i solve it no i always go and look for the problem first what's actually causing yeah. it yeah makes a lot of sense it's it's key like it's absolute key and for people that want to uh, see your very cool log hives, do you have social media? Um, I do, yeah. yeah. If there's a website out there. And um, so that's boomtreebees.com uh, on Facebook as well, Instagram. I, it's all the basic stuff. I'm not very good on the, some of the platforms, like, but I try my best. Um, anyone that has any questions, they can always contact me either, either by phone, by telephone, or email or something. On the website, you can contact me as well, like, and I'll be always happy, happy to help as well. There's a few times now I've been um, speaking as well, like for certain beekeeping uh, associations in America. 
So if, if groups were interested in that, yeah, always good as well. Like more than welcome to share like what's going on. Because at the moment now I'm um, tied in with research as well, like through the university, where they're actually trying to figure out um, why these colonies are so long lasting as well. So it's part of now, uh, we're in the second year now of a five year project where they're sampling bees, like bringing them back and they're testing like for diseases, pests, and seeing like what, what actually goes on inside the hive. Like, so they're going to be taking access samples of any debris that's there. They can see if there's any buildup of, of heavy metals or anything like that. So we're working on that. And then along, I'm trying to force uh, a new kind of like a research because I think it's completely uh, neglected. Everyone talks about pesticides and everything like, but what is the one of the main thing the honeybee collects is water. So I want to have a very good understanding like of um, the water quality, uh, obviously, especially here in Ireland. But I think for yourselves, it should be crucial as well. Like obviously, if you're going to take on bees and you're going to set them near a water source, if that water source is completely contaminated, it doesn't matter like what else goes on because they're using so much water constantly in the hive, obviously to dilute like uh, winter stores, to, to cool down the comb. They're constantly using it as well like to um, uh, for the food as well. like uh, So they're always, always at it. Like, and if you have like, a real bad contaminated source, well, there's absolutely no point you even putting bees there. Uh, because you're asking for trouble then because it's very quickly um, those chemicals like and in, 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 uh, heavy metals that build up in the water uh, especially here like, we probably have one of the worst water qualities at the moment uh, they're really struggling like in certain areas where we shouldn't even be drinking it it's that bad um, so obviously it's bad for us like it's definitely going to be bad for the bees um, so I want to know like what what happens with that water? So especially in the summertime when they're using it to cool the comb, where obviously they're kind of just spraying it over the comb like to cool it down, how quickly does it build up? So I'm going to use a couple of samples of hives. Like I'm going to sit them in certain locations where I know where the water quality is very poor, and I'm going to then um, do the same like where the water quality is very good and compare the comb structure. And I was actually take samples of the comb and do some uh, testing on those. So hopefully I can get that off the, the ground in the next couple of years as well, where we can do that sampling. But lots of money involved, which is not good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you better be uh, posting those on Instagram so I can check them out. So, yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. I'm waiting now for the results to go back like for the, from the first sampling uh, batch like last year. So hopefully we get some good data back like, to find find what's, what's going on like with the local population here, what we have. Because I actually found um, that I had a couple of bees, uh, a couple of colonies, that they actually had a color morph on the pollen basket, uh, which the researchers hadn't seen anywhere else in Ireland. So there might be that there is even like very little micro pockets of um, locally adapted bees as well. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah so that. <laughs> I'm hoping to get word back from that. Like, so the minute I get it, yes, it'll be definitely out there. 
Yeah, that, that's really cool. I've uh, recently been reading about using lactobacillus to treat your bees, basically, or spray your bees, spray inside the hive to inocul basically inoculate the hive with uh, additional lactobacillus to help. Suppose, according to some research, there's uh, some evidence that it would help give more mite resistance. So I'm, I'm super curious to hear about yeah, uh, it's, it's what you false, guys are seeing. Yeah, it's false damage, isn't it? He did that research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But see, see when, where, where did he get it from? Like when, because how, how does a natural cavity occur? A natural cavity occurs when you get like damage on like a tree, a branch breaks off by the wind, and then uh, the fungus moves in, and this is a polypore. So the polypore moves moves into the wood and it eats the hardwood out of it. So that whole tree then is already completely surrounded with the fungus itself. And it's then when the bees move in, the fungus is already there. It's their presence. The bees are obviously the bees make the tree sweat inside as well because obviously you have the food source of the tree that runs up and down. They're creating a heat source inside. It's obviously going to draw moisture in from the tree as well. So they're constantly in contact with those um, spores as well from the fungus. So that's, that's yeah. why when you have those situations where everything is there, it's present already. Like, yeah, obviously, it's going to work very well for them. That's awesome. So, Mick, this was super informative. I feel like I learned a ton. I thought I knew what I was talking about before we got into this. So and thanks so much for coming more. on. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting. And I feel like beekeeping, you can go down these rabbit holes of like super niche specific content around beekeeping that you can spend hours and months and years researching and then there's like oh there's this totally other area that you haven't even thought about yes. and uh, that, that's really cool and interesting so i'm glad you're doing the work you're doing thanks very much for having me yeah have a good one okay cheers